I am thrilled to announce that An Actor Despairs is partnering with a wonderful CBD company called Kind Farms. Everyone out there has heard of CBD. I started taking it a few years ago when I first started getting sober and to help with my anxiety. Sadly, as one can do, I was overtraining in the gym, and a friend recommended a topical and a tincture to help with the pain. I tried it. It was okay. However, recently, I was introduced to a product that has really changed my life. Not only has it helped me with anxiety, but I am stronger than I have ever been. I'm able to carry out lifts my body used to prevent me from doing. Kind Farm products have single-handedly changed my life athletically and personally. They utilize 100% local licensed farmers, organic cultivation, and CO2 extraction for superior CBD. Kind Farms is turning CBD to a kind alternative to pharmaceuticals. Let's transform tobacco row into hemp row. If you want to get involved, please reach out. Together, we can make a difference. You can use my code RYAN10 for 10% off. You can find them on Instagram at KindFarmsInc, all one word. That's K-I-N-D-P-H-A-R-M-S-I-N-C. And their website is KindFarmsInc.com. Once again, my code for 10% off is RYAN10. And now, let's get started with today's show. Welcome to An Actor Despairs. I'm your host, Ryan Perez. Ladies and gentlemen, today on An Actor Despairs, we have an incredible and exciting and one of the most thrilling episodes I've ever done with a guest who needs no introduction, Tim Robbins. He is here to talk about a wonderful new thing he's doing with the Actors Gang Theater, a production called We Live On. It's an adaptation of Hard Times by Studs Terkel with new text. It's incredible, and it is the first virtual piece I have ever seen that truly works. It means so much what Tim is doing with the Actors Gang. This piece is so moving. I'm linking it here. It's pay what you can, and if you truly cannot afford anything, it's available for free. You just contact them at the Actors Gang. Guys, support the cause. It's truly one of the greatest things I've seen. If you've been like me and you've been feeling a little down and out and weird, this piece, it really nails it home. What it means to be human and how we survive and how we truly live on. It's been so humbling and it really buoyed me at a time when I've been feeling very low. I am so grateful to Tim, the Actors Gang, and everything that they're doing. Please check it out. Support the cause, guys. I never ask for a call to action, but I am asking for each and every one of you to go and support the cause and pay what you can. Check it out, guys. It's called We Live On, available on the Actors Gang website. Link below. So much love, Tim Robbins. There's part one, part two, and part three. However, you don't need to see a first part to understand another. So please check out all three parts. All right, guys, here it is. Tim Robbins, welcome to An Actor Despairs. How are you doing, brother? Doing well. Thanks for having me. It means so much for you being here, man. I I usually never share much about myself, but, uh, you know, because of the beauty of of We Live On and, and your entire catalog of work, I wanted to share, you know, I was I was having a really rough week last week before I got, you know, the email about potentially doing this. And, uh, 
you know, man, I'm an actor and uh, I live in New York City and I'm kind of started that theater, you know, way, but that collapsed. And so been auditioning and had some kind of bigger auditions that didn't work out. And I just had that kind of existential, is there hope moment, you know, and I really just was pretty despondent. And uh, obviously I've seen so many of your films, but I hadn't seen Shawshank since I was a child. And, you know, I suppose getting the email was a, was a sign in itself because I was asking the world for a sign. But then rewatching that film, you know, it's I, I just broke down in ways that I didn't even know I, I could feel. You know, I haven't felt a reaction like that to a, to a piece of of art, I say, you know, in, in such a long time. And, uh, you know, growing up, I, I used to go to UCLA in the summers because you know, I loved your career and I really wanted to study at their theater program. And even though I, I did get in, I decided to go to NYU instead. So it's a real, real honor. You're a true artist and visionary in everything that you do, both as an actor, a writer, a director, a filmmaker, an artistic director at the Actors Gang. It means so much for all us actors worldwide. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you. Oh, thank you. That's so sweet, Ryan. Yeah, but... um. Usually, if it's cool, we, we start at the beginning and we can kind of just figure out which, you know, things we want to talk about along the way. So you grew up in New York, right? Yeah, I grew up in uh, Greenwich Village. How was and, that experience? Um, really great. Um, interesting. You know, when you're a child, you don't know anything else. So you think the rest of the world is Greenwich Village. Yeah. So, <laughs> so it wasn't until much later that I realized that how special it was that my parents had made that choice in the early 60s to move the family from California, where I was born, to uh, kind of the epicenter of creativity, bohemianism in America. And um, my father was a folk singer, and so it was a natural for him. Uh, he had made a trip before us to, to check it out, and he had been um, embraced by a community, a young man, you know, a folk singer, and uh, he told me this story once towards the end of his life uh, where he, he was, when he was on this trip, he was invited by Ronnie Gilbert, um, a member of a, a group called the Weavers, um, uh, who were very successful. And she's quite famous. And she took him under her wing and uh, invited him to this night that they were having, a living wake for Cisco Houston, wow. one of Woody Guthrie's friends. And he was dying and everyone knew he was dying. It was he didn't have much time left. And so they decided to throw a, a party for him in which every folk singer in the Greenwich Village would play for him. And he was yeah. in the audience. And my dad was crying when he told me this story. Uh, I think he was crying because he remembered the kindness of this woman. Um, and I in thinking about it, realized that my entire life was due to the, you know, my career, how I wound up where I went, yeah. was due to the kindness of this woman wow. who, who, who made him feel part of a community. And he got on the phone with my mom and he said, put the kids in the station wagon and uh, come to New York. And I drove cross country in diapers the first wow. time. That's and, um, and so, uh, Lived in a very creative environment, a very violent and rough environment at times. Uh, you know, street life in New York City in yeah. the 60s, you had to either run fast or be able to fight. And I learned how to do both. And um, 
it was uh, it was a, a crucible that uh, I had to pass through. And eventually, when I got out into the world, I had a leg up because of this survival uh, skills I had to learn in in New York City. Yeah. And did your parents, being artists, did they instill, you know, hey, we'd love for you to do this arts thing and expose you to the arts? Or was it kind of a, a natural inclination living in, in such an amazing city like New York, finding it yourself? No, completely exposed to the arts. My mom, I remember, would play uh, opera every Saturday uh, morning. And um, uh, she sang herself. She was a musician herself. Um, they were both um, both my mom and my sisters were in the church choir, which was led by, by my dad. Yeah. Um, we would sing in the household. There was no television. Uh, my dad and mom thought it was not good for our education. We had a stereo though, a very nice stereo. And, and uh, we would be able to hear beautiful music in yeah. through that. Um, they appreciated art, uh, a theater. Uh, they would take us to the free theater in the park in the summer at the Delacorte Theater, yeah. um, Shakespeare in the Park. I saw some truly amazing, groundbreaking, mind-shifting work there when I was a young uh, teenager. Um, and, But at the same time, when I wanted to go to performing arts high school, my dad said, absolutely not. Wow. And I said, why? And he said, well, I, uh, he was by this time an actor. He said, I have had many conversations with actors and, you know, there's nothing less interesting than an uneducated actor. Yeah. And um, I hated him at the time for that. Um, and I wound up getting into Stuyvesant High School, which was one of three specialized schools. Yeah. Bad LaGuardia and, and there's one in Queens as well, right? It was at the time it was Bronx Science, Brooklyn okay. Tech, and Stuyvesant High School. And otherwise, if you didn't get into one of those three, good luck. Because <laughs> 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 the public high school system was a little bit rough. My brother went through Seward Park and had a real tough time with that. Wow. So um <clears throat> so anyway, the um uh, uh so anyway, uh my dad said no to performing arts. I went and got an education at Stuyvesant and I understood, I understood many years later what he was talking about, that um, my education was, I think what allowed me to think in larger terms than just acting. Uh, I started to write, I started to direct when I was a sophomore in high school. Um, and uh, I, I, I chose that path. But interestingly, I also understood when I got to college and started taking acting classes, I started understanding that um, there's oftentimes more that you can learn about human behavior from other courses. Yeah. And I found uh, an anthropology course I took in college to be incredibly ins inspirational as far as my future, my future path. And intro to psychology, and there's, there's so many. A broad education is really important. And if, and by the way, if you, it's not necessarily you have to go to college because yeah. I have very, very smart friends that are self-educated. It's about the desire for education, totally. and you can. There's books everywhere. 
yeah. that you can find that can expand your mind. It's that good wool hunting scene. You know, you could get a Harvard education at a library for five bucks, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's and awesome. I, I, it was also an education of, uh, as far as I was concerned, the way that I came to theater was through the, um, what you'd call experimental theater, but I, or avant-garde theater, but it was off, off Broadway and it was vital. Uh, we were doing street vaudevilles. We were, we would pack up a truck and, we'd go to different neighborhoods and we'd have permits and, and we'd put our stage up, our back, uh, backdrop up and there you could dress uh, in your co- into your costume in the truck. Wow. And then we'd do a little parade. We'd be playing music and we'd gather an audience and we'd do theater uh, on the street. And I did this uh, after, my, uh, after my eighth grade, freshman year, sophomore year and junior year. And um, this was... Uh, really my education on, on what it takes to be an actor because I up on stage in the street with doing theater for audiences that have never seen theater before. Yeah. They don't have a filter. (laughs) I can imagine it's New Yorkers, you know? (laughs) Yeah. So they'll, they'll come right up to the stage and talk to you or, you know, the guys, you know, a drug addict will come up and think he's in the play. And, you know, it's, it's, it was an incredible education. So do you now break then when something like that happens, you just keep going and stick to the text? Uh, no, you improv it and you deal with it, you know? Wow. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. So do you, I, there was this great actor named George Bartenev who he, I, well, I remember him one time. There's this guy like, Oh, like, you know, so on the stage is, and George went up and started to dance with him. Right. <laughs> 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 took him off stage you know <laughs> <laughs> oh man that's an elegant move i love that man you can't teach instincts like that that's so beautiful and and do you feel like you know doing something that's that exposing and 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 putting yourself out there like that that's where you kind of started to find your voice because that's a reoccurring theme on this show is is finding your voice you know getting that educational experience through anthropology and psychology and doing these vaudeville things do you think that helps start the culmination of, you know, I don't want to say it's a singular moment, but the beginnings of that? Let's put it this way. I, my intro to theater was in the, uh, uh, was influenced by the other, um, uh, the other uh, influencers of theater other than Broadway. So my intro to theater was listening and working with people that have been influenced by Meyerholt and, um, and Artaud and, uh, and absurdism and expressionism. And it wasn't, it wasn't, I, uh, my education didn't come from, uh, realistic. Uh, yeah. yeah. It was, it was, uh, more European based. It was more, uh, it based in viewpoints. Uh, yes. Eventually yeah. viewpoints. Um, what wasn't around when I was young, but Viola Spolin, um, and, okay. uh, that whole way of thinking about acting for sure. Commedia dell'arte, I imagine as well. Or? Eventually Commedia yeah. dell'arte. But at the same time, I also read an actor prepares by Stanislavski and that's an amazing book. Yeah. It's, 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 you know, it's, it's really groundbreaking and particularly for the time it was written. Um, and then it became, that became like, a. Uh, a starting point and then everyone well not everyone but certain people took that book and made their interpretations of it yeah and then you have Stella the and, yeah and, the Pagan and all you know 
all legit. Listen, the way I look at it, if whatever gets you there, right? Totally. And yeah. um, I don't personally work that way. I don't like, I don't, I want an exit yeah. from an emotion. I, I don't want to get stuck in an emotion. And what I loved about the training that I got from Georges Bigot in 1984, that, w- that was, he was influenced and, uh, by Ariane Mnuchin from the Théâtre du Soleil in Paris, was the fluidity of emotion yeah. and the ability to go to extremes of emotion like that so yeah. that you snap from despair to joy. And as happens in life, yeah. Um, yeah. It, emotions aren't gradual. They, they switch like this. And so the training was to be fluid enough with the emotions, sincere, truth at this core of it, Getting deep at the core of it, yeah. emotional truth at the core of it, but fluidity in not getting stuck in it. Yeah. And I, I, I thank God for that because I see, you know, and I, when I train actors, there's this tendency for some people to believe that the gold star of acting is to be able to cry. And <laughs> I... Uh, I could write a whole book on this. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it ain't. Yeah. The gold star is you get, you're almost there and the audience cries. Yeah. That's the, that is the template I want to work in. Yeah. And so I, when I'm training actors, I have to kind of guide them away from it because inevitably when that happens, they cook themselves up into this horrible, you know, place where they're, weeping and they can't get out of it yeah and so anytime i see that i say uh when i'm prompting in an improv switch your switch your state or your emotion because i don't want them i want them to know that what is transcendent for an audience is if you can witness a character in absolute despair switch over to joy it's a beautiful thing it's transcendent. And, and we've seen it again and again and again. Yeah. Um, just like when you're happy and joyful and you turn a corner and there's a guy with a gun, you don't gradually go into fear. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's sign for the times in the city. That's so interesting. And, I'm and the other thing that this, this training did for me was it burst the illusion of, forever which i had never really bought into completely but it burst the illusion of this idea that there's a wall there mm, the fourth wall you mean yes yeah absolutely yeah. shattered it because what this teacher taught me was this is a this is not a movie these people have traveled to come see you they've invested their time their money Never assume any one of those people could afford this ticket. And you should assume that all of them had to walk here because they spent their last dollar on this ticket. You owe them an experience. And in theater, the way it was originated, and I've been on those stages, by the way, in those Greek and Roman amphitheaters. Yeah, because you travel with the Actors Gang, right? Yes. Yeah. And um, I remember doing a rehearsal for the first time 
in one of those Roman amphitheaters. And we, as an, as a, in our training, we share emotions through the audience to the actor we're working with. So the audience gets everything, not in a presentational way, but in a, sh- a way of sharing, right? So that we're not locked, you know, we're not asking actors to do this because you get a profile, right? Yeah. And oftentimes, here's what you get when an actor isn't in an emotion or forgets their lines. Oh, yeah. And then they come back. So the training is here, right? It was proved in that Roman amphitheater because when the actors were talking like this, you can't hear them. Yeah. That sounds insecurity all the way through. Yeah. The acoustical architecture demands that you treat you respect the audience that they are there and so that was a radical concept at the time for me when i was in my 20s because i still bought into it a little bit you know in my own acting on stage yeah and then i realized oh yes this when i'm invited in it's so much deeper and profound experience um it's a little bit uncomfortable at first because I'm not used to it as a witness to, to a play. But then once I, once a, a, a little time passes, you realize, why don't, why don't we all do this? Why, why, why don't we all do this? Yeah. No. Yeah. So I tended to gravitate already before this training into the more, as I said before, um, world theater kind of, and just so we could like put people where you are. So you graduate high school and do you stay in New York for a bit or do I, you go directly I, to college? No, I, I went right to college. I, uh, you know, we didn't have much money growing up. So I went to a state school. Uh, my parents told me we can help you through the first two years. But then when you're 19, you're going to be on your own. And so I did two years of college at Plattsburgh State University. They were the only uh, theater department in the state system that sent me any literature on the theater department. Um, I had a great time up there. uh, And then I went to uh, Los Angeles and uh, with the aim of hoping to go to UCLA, um, I got a... um, Another bird. <laughs> Siri. Yeah, so you got to LA and you, you were thinking yeah, so, about UCLA. Um, so yeah, so uh I I transferred uh, well I, I well I moved I moved out to Los Angeles with the hope of getting into UCLA. Uh I had to establish residency in order to afford it because at the time they actually cared about young people and educating yeah. them. <laughs> and well, Honor those days. To put them into debt. Yeah. But, but wow. uh, I still had to work uh, through college. But um, so I worked as a teamster actually for a year, got a residency, um, got some money into my bank account, and uh, then started at UCLA uh, in 79 and graduated in 81. Wow. Amazing. And yeah. I met there a bunch of. Uh, Fellow travelers, you know, punk rockers that were um, 
into theater that wanted to do a different kind of theater that wanted to put the kind of energy that we were experiencing on in, in nightclubs with, with punk rock bands onto stage. And also uh, that knew that theater could be a way to tell stories that were relevant to now yeah. this moment rather than um, creating museum pieces uh, that talk about social issues from the past. <laughs> so, uh, and, but fully educated by those groundbreaking works with full respect for Ibsen and O'Neill and, and Tennessee Williams and all the, the groundbreaking playwrights that shattered the uh, um, illusion of the late 19th century uh, romanticized theater. Yeah. Uh, you know, Ibsen, and Ibsen writing just freaked everyone out. It, Christopher you know, Marlowe, all those great uh, I'm I'm curious, you know, because you had that production job, it sounds like you were so incredibly, I love it because I'm a theater guy, theater focused. Were you, were you interested in, in Hollywood at the time or were you really just caring about the theater and, and doing good work there? I truly thought that when I got out of college, I would move back to New York and be a theater director. Wow. Uh, that's what I wanted to do. And um, I acted some in college, but uh, mostly concentrated on writing and directing. And uh, had great teachers there that were young, uh, excited by uh, their new jobs as theater te teachers, and guided us in directions that uh, we wouldn't have gone down, uh, gone in, um, you know, uh, being introduced in a theater history class to uh, the works of uh, Artaud and, uh, you know, Alfred Jarry and, you know, and then as the first play that the Actors Gang did, this crazy scatological um, play that was written in 1900 or something like that. And oh, wow. the first performance of it in Paris, that was uh, the audience was so outraged that they tore the seats up in the theater and rioted. No way. Yeah. And I um, love that. <laughs> so that was a, That's my kind of theater. <laughs> and as I was reading the play, I, I read, and when, I remember I, when I read the stage direction, the entire Polish army enters I, I realized I had to do this play. Wow. Because I loved the idea that his imagination was that crazy. And then it's basically a challenge to a director. Yeah. What are you going to do? How are you, you going to portray the entire Polish arm? Like, how does that happen? So it was, um, anyway, that was the entry point for the actor's gang. That's where we started making our reputation. And here's the beautiful thing about Los Angeles at the time. There were four significant papers. There were more, but there were four, you know, LA Times, uh, Herald Examiner, LA Reader, and LA Weekly. They all came wow. to our first production to review it. Like you postcarded them or they just came on their own? No, I, I we did, you know, postcarded them, you know, sent a you know, primitive press release out. Love that. God. And we're just a bunch of college kids that, you know, had finagled a theater by convincing the guy that we'll do it at midnight if you don't pay us rent. If we, you know, if we can't, if we can't pay rent, so can you, can we let, can we share the theater with another 
company and we'll come in after their show's over, set up and do our show at midnight. Yeah. Wound up running for six months. It was uh, crazy. And, and it was uh, immediately we knew that we had something and we kept working together. Wow. With so many peers from UCLA started it with you. Yeah. That's incredible. I love that. That's such, I mean, it, it, you don't hear about that as often as, you know, things like the Wooster Group. That's so beautiful. Thank you for that. And, and w- well, this what- is the great thing about college. And the, what I tell people that are going to college, that it's really not, a, I mean, unless you, unless you want to go on to grad school, uh, unless your ambitions are to be like a doctor or a lawyer or a doctoral candidate, find your tribe. That's the most important thing. Yeah. Find people that, you run with and you'll figure something out. Yeah. I love that. It's what I've been trying to do. You know, it's so beautiful. And, and while you're there, you know, I mean, obviously I imagine having the newspaper come and, and that being a, a published article, did Asians start to come to your shows? Nope. Agents oh. don't care about theater out in Los Angeles. Yeah, but, I guess so. Yeah. Uh, but we didn't care. That was why we were doing it. Yeah, I had no ambition in that way. I got lucky. I got an agent because um, a guy uh, named Gary Gardner, uh, who was my playwriting teacher, uh, was temporarily in charge because of another teacher on a sabbatical was temporarily in charge of who was selected to perform on this evening. They would do every May called the O'Brien Awards. And I got into that competition and that's where agents uh, came. They came to UCLA to see the top 10 acting students. Right. Got it. And I won that competition that night, got an agent out of it, started auditioning. I was terrible because I had an attitude. I still, you know, I'm punk rock. I'm like, I don't yeah, know. Yeah. Anti-stabbing. <laughs> Fuck you. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and they 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 could tell I had an attitude. Yeah. <laughs> so it was about a year of auditioning before I I, uh, I got work, and incidentally, cast as a terrorist. I think was it Saint Elmo's Fire? Saint Elsewhere. Elsewhere. Yeah. Tom Fontana. Yeah. 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 Got yeah. it. That's crazy. And, and for you, obviously getting the chance to do that, you know, there's, there's sometimes money involved in film and TV that there just isn't in theater. Was it like for your own artistic integrity? Did you, did you feel bad? Like, were you okay with pursuing that because it allowed you to do theater more, you know? I still didn't understand. Well, yes, that was the big, once that first check came in, that's what I understood. But before that, I still, on that first job, I was still a punk. And, and, you know, I almost lost the job because I had done one day of shooting. And then my second day of shooting happened to be the morning after the clash were playing at the palladium oh, in Hollywood. Killed to see that show. I needed to go. I, I, and I went and I was in the mosh pit and I was that you know, that I saw the clash. However, I overslept the next day. <laughs> oh, man. And I showed up late to work. I was such an idiot. And uh, the producer later told me, uh, you know, listen, we would have fired you if you hadn't shot that 
one day and he said, I also didn't like your attitude when you came on a set. And I being young thought, shit, I'm in trouble and I'm playing a terrorist. I don't have time for niceties. I got to be in character. So I just immersed immediately, did the work. I should have apologized. I, you know, knowing now what I know, yeah. I was an asshole. Yeah. No, no doubt. You know, yeah. I admit it. And if I was the director, I would have been pissed. Yeah. What a punk, right? And so advice to everybody, even if it might be your favorite band, <clears throat> it ain't worth it. Because yeah. that almost nipped it in the bud. <clears throat> My agents were like, should we drop you? Because if you don't take this seriously, you know. So I got a wake-up call, you know. And um, eventually I started working more and more in episodic television, and that was good money and it, you know I, I financed Ubu the King uh, Ubu Wa uh, our first show with tips from delivering pizzas oh at, in, in Beverly Hills uh, I, I was you know my money was very thin at that time and so when those first checks started to come in I realized oh I can do a lot of theater with this and changed so everything so we started producing one, two shows a year at the beginning. And then we got into three and four and uh, started, we were kind of an itinerant company would go to different venues for the first 10 years of our existence. And then eventually when I started making the kind of money that I could afford to, you know, repurpose a, a warehouse into a theater, we did that. And we're in Hollywood. We were in Hollywood for, I think uh, 12 years. Oh, Great neighborhood. Love it. That's incredible. And while you were doing that, you know, did you have a partner that helped you run it while you had to film things, you know, like a co-artistic director? I had a, a, uh, had th two other directors that wanted to, to work. Yeah. And um, so when I was going, they would be <clears throat> uh, directing. Got it. I'd be financing. They'd be directing. And, uh, the actors would, you know, go from play to play. Um, I have to say it again, though. We were interested in doing theater. Yeah. We weren't interested in doing showcase. And a lot of L.A. theater at the time was showcase kind of theater. It was like, we need to get agents. So, yeah. And in fact, one of the, one of the plays that we shared uh, the space in, in our first venue, uh, where we did the show at midnight, was uh, a, an evening of one acts and it was three unsold TV pilots. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome, man. So rock and roll. I love it. But here's the thing. LA at the time and up until re recently has always been an incredible nurturing ground for actors and theater artists. Yeah. Um, there's so many actors here and they, they, because we had that equity waiver rule you could keep your craft going. Yeah. Uh, and the equity waiver rule was you can't do theater for anyone, any theater more than 99 seats. And the reason why they did that was because they didn't want exploitation. They didn't want actors to, you know, be working and the producers being making a lot of money. And I guarantee you, we, I never made any money. In fact, yeah. it's in the opposite and supported this for many years. Um, now that's there's a hostile environment to that kind of theater. Um, they basically changed the rules, equity, 
despite the fact that two-thirds of its membership voted to keep the equity waiver system, got rid of it. Um, they had already gotten rid of it in other cities, and, and I had seen the decline in the amount of theater done in San Francisco, for example. Um, knew you, I already knew how difficult it was to get a showcase up in New York and uh, and how expensive that was. And it it seemed to me that these people really don't care about actors yeah. because if they cared about actors, they wouldn't set up a situation where the only kind of theater that you can do right now is two and three character plays. That's the only thing that you can afford to do. And even then you're going to break even. Yeah. So, in, or lose money, depending on how much you spend on your sets, et cetera. So I, I have always thought of actors equity as a kind of a obstacle to the kind of theater that I love and the kind of theater that we were. I don't know. I guess if I was coming out of college now, I don't know how I would do what we did then. Yes. Not only, not only do you have a hostile environment from the actors union, but you also have less newspapers and they don't even list you anymore yeah. in, in the theaters. They used to list, even though you couldn't pay for advertisements, they used to list the fact that you were performing. Yeah. And so I, it's, I, I, what I'd encourage people that are coming out of college, just do it. Uh, you can do anything if you're not a professional. Uh, <laughs> Touche. <laughs> I think we've and, all learned that. Yeah. And, um, and the sad thing is that, you know, I think their theory on this is that if they wipe out the 120 equity waiver theaters in Los Angeles, that somehow miraculously there's going to be all these mid-level theaters that rise up with, you know, 500 seats. And the, that would be, you know, that they could, you know, have equity contracts Unfortunately, that's just not the way this city is. The, yeah. the, most of these theaters are serving their communities, right? Yeah. And the the idea that somehow that's going to be lucrative for actors, look at the contracts. They're not yeah. that great. And by the way, most of the theater done in Los Angeles at the those kinds of venues, the Geffen, the Taper, the Kirk Douglas, LA actors are really angry about this because most of the time when they're doing plays and paying money, they're hiring actors out of New York. I know it's so to work up. as locals. Yeah. So that we have a we have a great great theatrical community out here that is currently under assault and due to COVID also, you know, of course, losing their spaces. Yeah. And now we have a new labor law that was originally intended for Uber and Lyft that now is picking. <laughs> on nonprofit theater companies. Oh my God. And because Uber and Lyft were able to lobby their way out of the, uh, out of the, the law. Uh, they had made inroads in Sacramento and AB five doesn't apply to, for, yeah. for them anymore, but it does apply to nonprofit theater companies. So um, yeah, so it's tough. It's, yeah. it's a tough environment right now. Um, I hope that uh, a lot of these theaters can survive. Yeah, me too. Especially, you know, I've spent a lot of time in North Hollywood. There's so many great ones there. You know, it's just so brutal. So, you know, I'm curious, you know, because obviously I, I, I do have to ask, you know, you have this incredible burgeoning film career that really starts to take off. And, and you know, things like Bull Durham, James Ladder, Shawshank and, and things like that. While you're having that happen, is it always on your mind to make sure that this thing is still activated you know, got people in, in 
signing up and doing the work and getting productions together, you know, was a, because it really seems like it's always been just as imperative to you as, as everything else. And that's what I love about you. It was always a, uh, something that was a priority for me. It was for me, a training ground. It was uh, a way for me to uh, remain humble. Uh, the idea that when you're doing theater, you know, the audience will tell you if it sucks, you know, they, you have to, when you're doing a movie, they don't get to vote. Yeah. Uh, it's all abstract, you know, and, and the people that are telling you you're great are people you're paying. Uh, and um, <laughs> so it becomes this. Uh, Insincere. Uh, well, you yeah. know, it, it just, it's better to get up on stage. Let's yeah. put it that way. It's better, yeah. it's better to, to, to see if you can make it there. Uh, because that's the ultimate proving ground. An audience will tell you, regardless of uh, regardless of who you are. Yeah, I love that, and that's incredible. And so then, you know, obviously, uh, we're here to talk about we live on. So, can you talk about the beginnings of the idea for this? You know, um, yes. Anyhow, um, so yes, we live on. Um, so when the pandemic hit and the lockdown happened, uh, we started gathering on Zoom to workshop. We always develop our new pieces in, in workshop. Um, and so we understood that very soon that you couldn't do theater on Zoom. It, it, it's, uh, it's, it's not the right medium for it. You, yeah. you know, you're asking an audience to suspend their disbelief that, you and I are doing a scene and we're in the same room. Yeah. And the reason why we're in the same room is because we both have black backdrops. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, so sorry. awkward. Yeah, I know. Done work, done work. Uh, and on top of that, the timing, you know, great theater has to be like, like this and you have to overlap and it, that is just impossible on yeah. zoom. So we started working the monologue form and for our source material, uh, Studs Turkle no. book, right? Yeah. I yeah. thought Studs Turkle is the right voice for right now because he's written books that are basically uh, oral histories of a time. Was we that part people. of Cradle Wool Rock? Was that where some of that information came from as well? No. Oh, okay. This is separate. So, um, so, so there, so the, I thought, well, this is, weird we're in this lockdown there's this pandemic happening and there's going to be some people that are really going to be hurting from yeah. this um, you know there's you know so there's the section of society that's just going to say hey it's a long problem yeah, it's a vacation right you know and there's others that are going to really suffer and we were interested in telling that story yeah uh and and there were elements in the group that wanted to do fun, distracting stuff. And I said, no, 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 no. When the house is falling, you got to acknowledge it. It doesn't do anyone any good to pretend that this isn't happening. Yeah. And so let's embrace it. Let's look at it and let's talk. Let's, ha let's read these accounts of these people that went through a very, very difficult time that had to face incredible challenges, uh, poverty, uh, evictions, um, uh, uh, layoffs, uh, rootlessness, depression, all this stuff. And so we, as we were reading through it, we realized, holy cow, this could have been written yesterday. Yeah. That's and, what I felt um, while watching it. I mean, it, it, 
blew my mind. Yeah, it's it's it really resonated with us. So we started in the first person, and you know, and as it's written in the book, it's basically studs went around. Seth Sturgill was an amazing chronicler of Americans, and he would go around with his tape recorder and he'd tape them, and then he'd edit them into a book. And so we started in the first person, then we realized again suspension of disbelief. I'm a 35 year old portraying a 70 year old in 1970 and it's 2020. Yeah. So we decided to, okay, let's, um, I told everyone, let's, why don't we do this? Why don't you write your, your, your character in the third person? It's you telling that story Two, And this is what we figured out that we could do on zoom is simply talk to this wow. person right there in the lens that as if they're right across from me at the table, we're at a bar, we're at a coffee house, and I'm just telling you a story. Yeah. And just really reduce it into the intimate, the, the personal, and tell these stories. And I also asked uh, a few members of the company, uh, and eight eventually wrote their own pieces about their own family, talking to their grandma. I also encouraged all of everybody in the group, because, you know, think about it. Everyone was going, and still is, going through, it's a deep thing that we're going through. It's the darkest, and, it's, yeah, I mean, it is. It, 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 and so I encourage people to reach out to their family, to their, to the, particularly to the elders, and, and talk to them about the depression. Have conversations. What did you go through, grandma? What did you go, what was, what was it like? And eight of the, uh, the company um, wrote beautiful pieces uh, based on their own personal experiences. And so then we started to do it uh, in June of last uh, year. No, this. this oh, year. okay, so, okay. No, we did. We we started in April uh, last year. We would meet once a week. We didn't even decide which pieces we were going to do until the following April. Okay, got we it. went. It was kind of a way to check in with each other, be a community. Uh, share these stories, talk about these stories, and also help guide ourselves through this em- emotional challenge that we were going through of yeah. being isolated. But also, uh, I, there was a good period of time where we didn't do it at all, and we went in to do other things. We started working in puppets and did some play readings and that kind of thing. So um, in April of this year, we started rehearsing this version once a week and then eventually got around to performing it in June. And at the first performances, we realized, because we didn't know if it was going to work or not. We didn't know if people were interested. Uh, people are burned out on Zoom. W- will they even come? And the first audiences told us that it was resonating with them that it was beautiful that it made them cry that they they uh and they would hang out in these talk back sections sessions we would do i saw that i love that you never get that after the show they're still talking about it and i I thought well i think we have something here and i think we should do it and so right now we're expanding it uh to a wider audience we're doing press so that anyone in the country can come see it it's live Thursday, Fridays, and Saturday nights. So it is live on Zoom. Yes, it is. Got it. great. I love that. Amazing. And and people can check that out where? At theactorsgang.com. Theactorsgang.com. And you have part one, which I got to see, which is 
brilliant. I'm, I'm not just saying this. It is the only virtual piece that I'm like, well, this really works for this medium. I mean, it, 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 the use of music and the images. And it was just like, it felt like it was, it was today, the, the way people are, you know, everything's foreclosing now that the rents, you know, that, that in, uh, that forbearance is no longer in existence. And it just, it, 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 it blew me away. You know, it's just uh, a darkness that I never hoped humanity would have to experience. And I, I just thought it was such a beautiful piece. And I think the reason it has beauty to it, and this is, you know, one of my heroes are Aaron Mnuchin. I did some conversations during the pandemic with theater visionaries, and one of them was Aaron Mnuchin, and the other one, Peter Brook, I got to talk to. And she said to me, don't forget the importance of beauty in this moment. And what it is that I find beautiful about these stories is that these people all survived. They all did. They got through it. Yeah. Because it's, it's amazing the sacrifice people went through for their families and what they were willing to do. Yeah. And what did they do? They united. Yeah. They found common cause. Yeah. A shared sense of what it is to be human, which is the opposite of what we're doing right now. No, it's, it, it's the most disconnected. I feel like we've ever been in, in life. And it's I so don't ironic. think that's entirely uninten- unintentional. Really? If you, do you mind expounding on that? I'm curious what, what you think about that. Well, I think from time immemorial, uh, the people in power seek to divide their populace. Right. Because if a, a populace is divided, it's a, a faster way to keep power. And as long as people are fighting with each other, they will never understand how much they have in common. Exactly. I mean, this vaccine. And and so you can, you can talk about the vaccine. You can talk about red state, blue state, a constant struggle of like, who's right, who's wrong. You're an idiot. You're a, you know, conspiracy theorist. You're this, you're that. There's no real dialogue going on. There's no, even in the scientific community, which is really scary. So that's, that's for me, this kind of hostile environment, it, it doesn't end well, folks. It, no. it, 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 you can, you know, be right about something and God bless you for being right. And God bless you for trying to help people. But if someone doesn't agree with you, you're not going to win them over by demonizing. Yeah, you're not going to win them over. And if your intent is to win them over, then figure out a way to do it. Because right now we're just getting more and more divided. The lines are getting more and more drawn and it's, it's not going to end well. It will not end well. And uh, for all the righteousness you might have of whether you're left or right, the the way the path forward is to find common ground. It might be uncomfortable. It might take a lot of, uh, lack of pride and it might take some humility and it might take uttering the sentence, you know, I may be wrong or, you know, I, 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 we, we may not agree, but what do we have in common? It, we need to do that right and left. And, you know, we have to admit when we may have been wrong. Yeah. And that's so hard to do in these polarized environment. And, because we have this 
as our fun matrix. You know, oh, this is God. our connect connection to society now. And I can find my tribe on this and they can all say the things I agree with yeah. and call those other people stupid. Right. Uh, and I can feel real good about myself, but I'm telling you once again, it's not going to end well. Yeah. And it's, it, it feels like now, you know, I, I, I'm here live in New York City. We need the theater more than ever. And now with this Delta, you know, it doesn't, you know, it seems like now there's a question mark about fall. And I love this piece. And I'm so glad that you're doing this live because this is what the world needs. This is, I mean, this isn't even right. This is just, this is the truth. This is what we went through is, is humanity, you know, and that's what we need to remind each other of that we're, that we're human, that we're here for each other. And I, I, the music and everything in this piece, the images, it was, it was, it was so well crafted. I, I, it really moved me in such profound ways that I really didn't know a virtual piece could do. Well, I, I really love hearing that because that was our intent. And I, I believe that is true. I hope more people see it. Um, you know, I hope that people find their way to the actorsgang.com. And, and, and by I'm the gonna, way, I, wanted, be linked I, I also right want to say just for all you people out there are like, oh, he's just selling this and he wants to make some money. It is if you are busted, if you do not have money, if you're struggling and you don't think you can afford something right now, it's free if you want it to. Be. You just have to go to the website and say, I'm busted. Help me out. And we got you. We'll get you in. Thank you for that. I'm going to link it right here. And uh, I'm getting the heads up. You know, you, you got to get on for the day. But this was such a pleasure. I mean, I feel like we just barely scratched the surface. I would love for you to come back and we really dig in, you know, one day soon. It would it would be such an honor. You know, thank you for coming on and talking about We Live On and it just telling me about your theater experience. It's so wonderful to hear and and very gives me hope you know because that's what i think we need more of right now well thank you ryan and uh you know we're gonna be we're gonna be all right just gotta stay connected to your humanity yeah and the better parts of it the empathy the forgiveness the the love try to find that every day and if it's not there in front of you try to reach out to someone and create it with them and it could be someone that you may not have talked to for a long time, yeah. but for whatever reason you've grown distant from. Those people want to hear from you. Yeah, I think we need it now more than ever. Like you said, find your tribe and and make work because there's no time like now. Yes, but don't 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 tell anyone your tribe is better than their tribe. <laughs> yeah, touche. <laughs> well. Tim Robbins, thank you so much, man. I mean, I, it, it, if there's ever anything in the Actors Gang, I would love to audition for you. I really would. It would be such an honor to get involved. I love what you guys are doing there, and it's so beautiful. And I'm so excited for parts two and three. And this was such a pleasure. Please let's let's do this again soon. And I'm sending you so much love. Thank you, man. And just the one last thing: you don't have to see part one to understand part two or three. Huge to know. They're all independent. They all work on their own. Amazing. We live on. Tim Robbins, thank you, brother. Awesome. So much love. All right. All right. If you like the show, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening.